Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Dr. Naoko Kojima, who is an associate professor at Ritsumeikan University. Very nice to speak to you today, Naoko. Nice to talk to you today. The citation that we're going to be speaking about is Dr. Kojima's book, which is Student Motivation in English Medium Instruction, Empirical Studies in a Japanese University. And the background to this interview comes from the fact that myself and, and Jonathan started this project uh, last year, and I contacted Naoko about possibly having an interview last April. And she said, well, I don't have any publications to speak about, but I am changing my PhD thesis into a book. Get back in contact with me when the book is out. And so the book is coming out. And so here we are. So as a little bit of background, what was the question that your PhD research was aiming to answer? Well, first of all, it actually uh, will begin with um, trying to understand Japanese students in the MI setting. And it was uh, just because I was teaching English at that university and I wanted to know where my students were going. Then. Uh, it became a bigger project. That means it became uh, my project for my PhD dissertation. And at that time, I tried to answer that uh, what is happening to Japanese students in my classrooms. Also, um, well, as a language teacher, I wanted to know why uh, my students in the English language classroom uh, are so differently from my class. Because usually Japanese students in my classroom uh, are quite active and they're willing to share their opinions with me. But when I saw them in my classrooms, they uh, look so, how could I say, they look so sad and they just looked like they wanted to leave the classrooms. So um, I wanted to find out why this is happening and what I could do to help them from that situation. So in that situation, I mean, do you say, do you see yourself more as a language teacher or a language researcher or some mm. combination of the two? I would say, yeah, that's the combination of two. Hmm. And through your research, what were your findings and were any of the findings surprising to you based on what you had observed? But to be honest, it was more like... Um, more like that was quite similar to what I observed, but I wasn't sure because it wasn't uh, based on research. It was uh, from only from my observation. I couldn't say anything for sure. So that was, um, I was, I was glad to know that was uh, confirmed with my research. But uh, um, one thing that I was, um, that I found interesting was I thought students and Japanese students were taking their classes um, with their friends, but actually none of them um, was doing so. They, they actually took classes based on their interests or based on their schedule. And it was different from what I thought um, that they were doing. So you initially thought that your students would most likely form a group and join the class as a group of friends but that they were actually following their interests uh do you think that's possibly a, a good point for emi in japan that the students are 
actively pursuing their interests in in a foreign language rather than doing something that might be a kind of a group oriented activity yeah, uh, i i would say so actually i would ask my friends to uh, take that class with me if the class looks challenging so that's why um, i thought they were doing the same but i guess uh, they were more mature than the time that i was um, as a student <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, you chose to turn your thesis into a book or you were approached to uh, adapt your thesis into a book what happened there well actually i was not planning to um to turn my thesis into a book well i presented part of my research in a symposium in 2017 in kyoto and annette bradford was uh, one of the audience at that time, and she asked me if I was interested in um, turning my research into a book. So that's why I decided to do that. Yes, uh, Annette Bradford's name does turn up quite a lot on this podcast, basically because she is, in the very nicest possible way, uh, a predatory uh, conference attendee. She finds people that uh, she thinks have a, a wider audience and does her best to you know give them that audience so could you give us some background that maybe um, people who are listening to this they are doing their phd they finished their phd they might be looking to do this activity how does one go from uh having a phd thesis to adapting it into what can be published as a book is it is it mostly similar did you have to reorganize uh, the chapters, did you have to add anything, take anything out? Well, uh, well, actually, I have to take things out, <laughs> lots of them. And for me, the most difficult point was um, I need to make sure it is interesting for the audience to read. For PhD thesis, it's more controversial. Like I have to make sure <laughs> that everything, <laughs> it's not required. <laughs> Well, like I need to make sure I put everything. It doesn't matter if it's, I mean, of course it's better. It was uh, interesting. It is interesting, but it it wasn't necessary to make it interesting. But uh, when I was writing a book or when I was revising, I need to make sure um, like it's interesting for the audience to read and make sure the balance between the chapters are quite uh, similar. And that was also very difficult. So I need to make sure that I combined uh, some of the chapters because in dissertation, like I, well, each chapter was quite, sh how, how do I say that? It wasn't quite short, like literature review was quite long, mm. but some of the chapter was not that long and I didn't need to think about the balance that much. So I need to combine some chapters and make sure that, um, I did not talk about uh, the procedure too much. And that was actually taking lots of time because when I sat in this chapter, sometimes it wasn't in this chapter anymore. So like, it's, of course it was easier um, compared to writing from scratch, but it, it took a lot of time than I thought it would be. Well, can I just uh, pick up on the word scratch there? So it, it, you didn't rewrite your thesis from word one. You you took uh, a text and adapted it into. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I didn't write it from scratch. 
And was that a decision that you made personally, or was that something that was recommended to you by Annette or by the or by the publisher? I actually submitted my proposal when I was writing my dissertation. Hmm. Like uh, it was in 2018. So the 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 structure was already decided based on my thesis and my dissertation. So I I would say I didn't need to rewrite it. One of the recommendations that I give, I mean, I've uh, spoken to people who have taken their thesis and turned it into different articles. And oftentimes the best thing to do, even if you don't end up publishing the article, it, in in my opinion, and, and people are different in their processes, I like to write from word one. I like to take the whole thing and go back to the beginning. And I just wondered if that was part of your process or if you felt comfortable taking something that already exists. I mean, a PhD thesis is essentially a book that you then give to two people and they decide whether you get to have the word doctor in front of your name. But a book is something that you have to, as you say, you know, publicize and, and hopefully people will buy. So um, it, it's, I think it's, I think it's a personal choice about whether you, you rewrite things or whether you adapt maybe it's my personal style or maybe i wanted to like when my dissertation was accepted at least i knew it was good enough to be um, accepted so i mm. guess um it would be a lot more difficult if, if i have to write from scratch because i need to make sure it's good enough so maybe that's another reason why i just revised um, my dissertation. No, I, I think I've I've told the story before on this podcast that I was once asked by my by my wife why it was taking so long to write my thesis, and I said it's very difficult to maintain motivation to write a book that you can only guarantee three people will read, one of whom is your mum. I think maybe the motivation to write a book that you know and you hope is going to be sold, I think might give you a little bit of that extra motivation. I've asked uh, the question to a number of other authors, actually, including Annette Bradford herself on this podcast. In the future, when you write your second and third book, yeah. is there anything that you've learned from this process that you think would change the way you approach it? Um, basically, the question is, any advice for people uh, to avoid possible mistakes? or, you know, you know, dead alleys of motivation? <laughs> well, to be honest, it was, um, that's quite interesting that I really, how could I say, my challenge when I was working on my dissertation was working on single topic for such a long time. And I did really need to think about having three people who read it in the world is demotivation for me. Because um, to be honest, when I was working on my book, I felt like I have been writing this topic like forever. It's like I, I thought I was done when I submitted my thesis and now writing on the same topic again. So even though I revised it, um, I revised um, my dissertation, I revised a lot. So I guess that would be, um, possibility that I, I write um, my second book from scratch if I had that kind of opportunity, if I mm. can have that opportunity in the future. If somebody who 
is going to write or turning um, their dissertation into a book. I would recommend that person organize their documents in order. It was, I, I revised so many times, like I submitted proposal many times and I submitted my um, draft so many times. Sometimes I was confused by what I organized before. It's like, um, even though that was something has been done by me, I didn't really understand what I did in the past. So if somebody was um, would uh, try turn into their uh, turn their dissertation into a book, I would recommend that that they have a very good system to keep their documents organized. It's a very good point, and and it's one that was brought up by a, a good friend of mine, Dr. Gabriel Dacamus, who turned her thesis into a book. And when I was interviewing her, and in personal in interactions that we'd had, she talked about organization a lot and how much she thought before beginning, well, I've definitely got enough for a book, and then quite early in the process realized, oh, no, I don't, and how much you had to go back and forth. In terms of time, from finishing your thesis to submitting the final draft of your book, how long was that process? I submitted my dissertation in July 2019, like July 2019, and I submitted my final draft in, are you talking about final proof or final? Um, the, 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 the final, 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 um, final stamped and, and approved version. Well, it's like uh, just two months ago. So I would say, how long was it? December? Uh, January this year. January. Okay. So that's January, 2021. So basically 18 months in order to take a, a thesis and, and turn it into a book. That's a, that's, that's a whole graduate project in and of itself so congratulations <laughs> on getting that done well actually i mentioned about organization just because um when i submitted my first draft or um to the editors annette and howard i actually followed the wrong proposal so they asked me like they, where did the my good titles go like they asked me some questions and i realized like um, I was following the wrong proposal. So basically the first six months or something, I was doing something wrong. So that's why I, I wish I had that six months um, back when I was actually working on the right direction. So maybe the advice to people in the future is uh, good communication with your editors and uh, knowing where you're going. I mean, I, I know both Annette and Howard personally, and they are very good people to to work with, but having published some work in the edited volumes, I do know that they are quite, how to say, their, their comments can be quite pointed. They don't have a lot of uh, time to waste. They're very busy people, so. Um, but as editors, I, I've always found them um, good people to work with. So the book that we're talking about is Student Motivation in English Medium Instruction, Empirical Studies in a Japanese University. Um, I'd like to talk a little more about the study and, about how you organized it, how you collected your data. Uh, you note here that you use uh, self-determination theory as a framework. Could you outline what that is uh, for people who are not 
who, who don't know that much about motivation? Well, self-determination theory is one of the, the most popular, popular, yeah, famous, I'd say not, yeah, famous theory among motivation theories. And well, basically, um, this and Ryan categorize human motivation into two big categories. One is intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. And intrinsic motivation is a state when a person is doing an activity to do that activity. So they enjoy it and they are doing it for excitement and enjoyment. So they don't have to be asked to do so. But extrinsic motivation is more like they're a person is doing that activity to get another goal. So they're maybe doing it for getting credits, or maybe they're doing it um, to avoid punishment. So they're doing it um, because of some kind of external pressure, or sometimes they know it's important uh, in their lives, but still they're doing it uh, to get maybe a better career. That um, theory, because first of all, SDT was used in many empirical studies in Jap Japanese classrooms. And second of all, that theory was actually um, beneficial to understand the context where inner curiosity and external pressure interplays. And I thought um, the classroom in like Japanese classrooms is. Um, actually perfect for that. I, I mean, in Japanese uh, classrooms, students are learning because of course they have to be there, but in some classes they are there because they are, um, they know that's exciting and they know they can enjoy learning in that classroom. And and you, you say that the second half of the book includes interventions that you used in your classroom to assist students uh, in their studies. What kind of interventions did you use? Well, that classrooms were quite big, the 220 or 30 student registers. So that was in a big lecture hall. So make sure, even though it was in a big lecture hall, make sure it was interactive because uh, in the first half of the book, um, I found out that students are quite isolated. So I, I wanted to make sure they belong to the classrooms or some kind of community. So I put um, students in a group of, four, group of four and make sure that group is mixture of international students and Japanese students. So Japanese students, could have opportunity to talk to them in English and also maybe the other way around as well. Also, I used discussion board on online learning system. Mm -hmm. They can discuss uh, outside of the classrooms. And in one course, I actually conducted intervention in two different courses. And in one course, um, I used discussion board in Japanese as well. Because for Japanese students, it was quite challenging to post a comment in English. So I used both Japanese and English and make sure 
Japanese students at least feel comfortable posting some kind of comments. And that's why I used also Japanese and make sure, um, well, actually in Japanese discussion forums, I make sure that they feel comfortable and confident. So Japanese was used to support them emotionally in EMI classrooms. And I think other than that, um, I gave them glossary because reading materials were quite challenging and they have lots of um, terminologies in the field. So that I made uh, glossaries and give them on, uh, online actually. One of the things that came up in my interview with uh, Diane Pecorari uh, on the topic of EMI is how much of the course that is termed English medium instruction is actually conducted in English. So if you have both Japanese and non-Japanese students in a classroom using English as the medium of instruction, about how much of the interaction was done in English or you know, how, how much intervention had to be included with, uh, with Japanese? We used English all the time. And actually EMI instructor was also Japanese, but she used English all the time uh, with their students and also with even TA and me when we were in the classroom so that uh, student did not think or did not assume that they could use Japanese um, in class. And even after class, we exchange emails in English and only one time that I used Japanese was uh, before the final exam. I had a tutorial session with Japanese students to help them uh, have better score on final exam. And at that time, because only Japanese students were invited, I used, um, Jap I used Japanese to help them. But again, the handouts that I distributed at the, the tutorial was in English. So I would say 90%, 90, 80% uh, were in, was in English. And during your presence in the class, were you there mostly purely as an observer or were you operating like a teaching assistant? But, um, what I did was quite like te teaching assistant, mm -hmm. but because I was already full-time teacher, um, in a different university. So the, the professor in that class, I mean, EMI instructor, um, asked their uh, harsh students um, treat me as a teacher. But I think what I did was more like um, TA and also observer and researcher. Now, this might be a difficult question to answer, but you spoke about you're using like online message boards and ways to connect students and form, you know, form communities between them. How adaptable was this kind of course to the courses that we've seen over the last year with courses going online during the COVID-19 lockdowns? Um, do you think that it would be possible to replicate your study in that environment? Or was this something that is, it has to be done in classroom, it has to be done in person? Wow, that's a very good question. It's important for students to know who they're talking to. So I'm not sure how comfortable they'll be if it's 100% online. And I try to be in class as much as I could 
even though I was four hours and a half away at that time, I tried to be there and I actually, sometimes I joined the discussion, although I needed to be quiet, but I tried to be there and talk to the students during the break so that they feel they know who I am. And I'm not sure how helpful it was because again, I did not conduct it 100% um, online. So that would work, but I'm not so sure about that. Going forward with your courses and your research in the future, uh, what are some avenues that you're looking at right now that uh, you can use your experience that you have from your PhD in, in, in producing this research uh, in your future work? Well, I focused on Japanese students last during, I mean, how many years? I don't, like about 10 years by now. I thought about Japanese students in EMI for such a long time. I feel maybe I wanted to know um, what international students are feeling in Japanese EMI settings. And I'm teaching international students uh, right now in my current university. I feel compared to Japanese students' um, thoughts and opinions, it's difficult for me to expect what they're thinking because they're quite different from me. And some of them are from Asia, but maybe some of them are not from Asia. So for me, I don't know how how supportive I am for them. So I, I hopefully I could actually conduct some research to understand international students in Japan. And, and what would be kind of the question that you would be addressing? I mean, uh, do you think that Japanese students need more support, less support? Uh, do you think that Japanese students need a different kind of support than international students in, in EMI classes? I, I think they need different support in the online classrooms. Maybe it's difficult if the teacher has 200 students, but still in EMI, because such a, a diverse learning community, we need to make sure that we think about um, we think about equity, not equality. And but in Japanese educational settings equality is such a huge thing that uh, even when I was trying to conduct a pedagogical intervention some of the professors were saying like it could be unfair to international students so I shouldn't help oh, I shouldn't help Japanese students but I think um, maybe international students need something different from Japanese students and Japanese students need something different. And I think we need to be more flexible uh, to help them. Well, I think we hear that phrase equity, not equality in, in a whole uh, number of contexts recently. And we do have people who listen to this uh, podcast from outside of Japan. How do you think that that phrase works in the Japanese context? Like, what do we have to do that, that's that's different for Japanese students to make sure that there is equity in the classroom and how important based on the feedback that apparently you got from the professors is equality 
in the Japanese classroom. I mean, I, I think this is a it's a it's a unique context, Japan, yeah. and that equality of you know access to the classroom is something that is valued very highly. But again, we want to make sure that everyone in the classroom that that there's an equity of and uh, with the access to the material. So, how do you judge that in the Japanese context? You mean how can we approach that concept in in, in Japan, particularly in uh, EMI classrooms that might have uh, mixed uh, a mixed dynamic, mixed ethnicity, non-Japanese Japanese students? Maybe I don't know the answer for now. I, I talked about some of the Japanese professors about that concept and many of them are actually got their degree outside of Japan, but they don't get it. They don't feel like, yeah, but, you know, they, they, they don't really think that's the important thing because I'd say maybe Japanese professors who got their degree, they had a better learning situation. Their social context was a lot better than um, normal Japanese students. So. From their perspective, if they if Japanese students uh, try hard enough, they could do it. But maybe mm. they are not motivated enough; they can't do it. So, from those Japanese professors, that's about the Japanese students, not about their context. Let's talk about future courses and what you have learned from your experience of your research. How do you explain to students, maybe in the syllabus or in the first lesson of class, how you're going to teach them in a way that takes into account all of the things that you've that you've learned to make sure that everyone in the class has uh, equal access? I mean, do you teach EMI courses at the moment? I, I do teach one EMI course, yes. And and the topic is intercultural communication. Do you use a textbook or, or what materials are you using in that course? Well, I use, I, well, I don't use certain textbook. I collect articles and part of textbooks and share with my students. And from your experience, in order that students buy in and feel connected to the class and build that intrinsic motivation that you that you want to instill in them, how do you for want of a better word, sell the course to them, again, either through the syllabus or through your introductory explanation? Because I, my, my students, international students in Japan, I know that they have some international communication experiences. And so my approach to the course is make sure that that course is based on students' experiences and like their opinions, not based on what I want them to learn. Of course, there are certain uh, concepts and theories. I mean, I always share with my students, but try to let the students lead the class. So I, I would say I can't change the context, but make sure what we can learn is based on students' voice and hope, um, hopefully they can feel they have some kind of ownership to their classes so they know 
they are the one who is making the class, not me. I think that's something that is connected to the concept of EMI, particularly where it's in a place like Japan, where there needs to be, you know, more uh, intrinsic buy-in by the students because it's con disconnected from the the language. It's disconnected from uh, the context of, you know, certain contexts of learning. So. I would like to ask you, as someone who, who's, who's teaching EMI to other people who are, who are looking into this concept, how important is it that EMI courses are student-based, that there is this student connection to what's going on in the classroom rather than the teacher being the one uh, leading everything? I, I, I would say very important education in general and not only EMI I, I think in language classes of course it has to be I mean at least students need to feel that they are leading the course and my job is let them feel that way and sometimes when they're still in entry level and they need to give them more or not maybe because of the level of their language proficiency it's more like when they're younger then maybe they need more student teacher input, but doesn't mean I can't lead a class. I, I think make sure the students are the one who is gonna lead that class. So did this come from your PhD research or was this something that you had since before even that? I, I, I think I already had that before that, but um, my, my project for my PhD actually reinforced um, that it should be like that. So your background, I, I believe, uh, kind of begins from language teaching and then moves its way into language research and EMI as it is now. Let's go to your background as a language teacher. Do you think there's, a, there's anything that you learned at that time that has helped you to, uh, to inform how you look at uh, EMI classes and how you conduct your research in terms of this idea of uh, student-centric education? I, I wasn't really a good student. <laughs> and it's not because my test score was low or anything like this. It just, when I tried to study abroad, my teachers, my English teachers told me that I was not good enough and they did not see me studying abroad. So for a long time, I thought I was not a good student. And when I studied abroad, um, one of the teachers I, I had taught me that my opinion was different from many students, and, and which, are, which was a good thing. And I never thought about that was a good thing. I always thought that was not a good thing. So it's, Maybe for now, it's kind of second nature to let the students know that it's okay to be different, it's okay to make mistakes. At that time, long time ago, when I was a student, it wasn't like that. And knowing that that's okay to make mistakes and to be different um, motivated me so much. And I enjoyed learning English uh, for the first time in my life. So to me, I worked really hard so that I thought that's gonna make my teacher happy and never thought I 
wanted to become a teacher, but I wanted to become a teacher because if I could be a different teacher from what I heard back in Japan, I mean, back in high school and junior high, I believed that there will be more students uh, who will enjoy learning English in Japan as well. So I already knew that when students feel they're important in their classrooms, they can push themselves harder um, and they can be very motivated. When I saw what my students were doing in EMI, I just thought I knew it was going to be difficult, but if I just let the situation go, I would regret and I would ask myself why I became a teacher. So that's why I decided to work on that project. Mm. I mean, just to, as we get towards the end of the, the interview, a little bit of a background on, on my connection with you. We used to work at Ritsumekan APU and we would work on courses together. And one of the things that, I mean, I'm not friends with everybody who I work with at APU, but we've maintained a connection because through uh, my work with you, I always felt that you had an empathy for the students, you had an understanding for what was going on in the classroom and your feedback was always based on that kind of, uh, kind of understanding. And I agree with you that enjoying learning English as, as something that helps you in your situation as a tool that helps you to go and learn overseas and, and gain uh, degrees and you know advanced degrees and, and, and a good and a good position and not just as an academic subject I think is, is something that is a message that would work not just in university but down through uh, other levels so as a kind of final question how do you think we can improve kind of like the language teaching I mean I'm I'm a father I have two young children they're going through uh, school right now how do you think your experiences as a language researcher, a language teacher working in university, uh, what could we do to help junior high school and high school students enjoy English more and thereby get more from it? Do you have any kind of thoughts on that? Can I be idealistic? You can be as idealistic as you would wish. I have a certificate to teach English at a high school as well in Japan. When I went through that process, I realized that practicum was only one month, or I'd say three weeks. And everything else was about reading the textbook and taking the lectures. And I, I, I'm not saying those are not important, but when I got my degree in TESOL, my practical practicum was like a semester long. And I, was doing TAs and I went to high school to tutor high school students. And to be honest, um, first thing that the experience they could get before they became teacher in Japan is too little to become a good teacher. So they are still not secure when they first became a teacher. I guess they don't have enough room to care about what students are thinking about because they're busy with them teaching 45 minutes or 15 minutes. So I guess they need more practicum to become a better teacher. And second of all, I'm not saying my English is perfect. I still need to improve a lot, but um, I found, um, well, after working at APU, I work at another university in Japan, then I got this job. And to be honest, um, 
in some traditional Japanese university, we don't need English to teach English. And that's a serious problem that the English teachers don't need to be good at English. And that's a funny sentence to say, like English mm. teachers mm. are not good at English. But um, I, I, I think when they're not confident enough with what they're teaching, it's impossible for teachers to enjoy teaching English. Mm. But it means that it's impossible for students to enjoy mm. learning English. So make sure that teachers have good English proficiency to have a better classrooms. And finally, I think um, at APU, including you, uh, everyone has degree from TSO Applied Linguistics and Education. But in Japan, there are so many people who are teaching English, but they don't want to teach. And their degree uh, from completely, I mean, something very different from English. Sometimes they learn photography um, in their countries, but they can be English teachers because they look non-Japanese. Mm. So, so it just somehow there are so many English teachers out there, Japanese um, classrooms or Japanese educational system are failing to recruit right population. And I think that's something we have to change. To bring, uh, to bring the whole thing round and also to include the words of a current and former colleague, Todd Bukins, he always said to me, I know you're a real teacher because the only thing you ever talk about is teaching. You will not shut up about it. You are always bringing it up. And that's how you know someone's a teacher. You'd know someone was an engineer if all they were talking about was engineering. You'd know someone was a dentist if all they talked about was dentistry. And having qualifications as a teacher kind of means that all that the only thing that you're thinking about is how to make your classes better, how to improve things for your students, um, because that's the thing that you're proud of. That's your that's your qualification. That's your that's your way through the universe. And I completely agree with you that sometimes it it doesn't manifest itself in the selections of people who choose to go into the profession who might not be interested in teaching. But that's certainly not you. So um, I have a final question for you. What is it uh, in the next, you're still a, a, a young researcher, you still have a lot of energy about you. What is it in the next 10 to 20 years that you, that you hope to achieve in your classes or, I mean, that you hope to inspire in, in, in your students? Do you, is it a love of English? Is it about using English for practical purposes? What, what, is, your, what is your aim going forward? Well, I, I, I feel like EMI is something you can't stop. And I guess in just 10 or 20 years, there will be more and more EMI courses in Japanese university. And if that's the case, or I'd say, seems like it will be the case, I wanted to see that international students and Japanese students communicate more. And I know that's difficult. And it's not only in Japan, but it's everywhere. When students study abroad, it's difficult to difficult to communicate with uh, local students. And even in the States, students, um, Japanese students and Chinese students, they will talk 
um, Chinese student, Japanese student, not local student. So I know it's difficult, but um, but I think um, one um, advantage of doing EMI is we have a common language that we can communicate. Right? So um, we can exchange our opinions in one classroom and maybe some of the, the examples in a textbook is not something something over there maybe one of the class classmates has that real um has real experiments um related to that kind of examples so the the good thing about emi is we can feel that we are not we can feel that we are not isolated we can uh or we are all connected and that that we can learn from each other even though we have different backgrounds. So hopefully we can maximize that advantage, not focusing on disadvantages that EMI has. So hopefully in 10 or 20 years from here, I would like to help EMI classrooms a better help somehow that the EMI classrooms will be a better place for students to learn. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Kojima. The book we've been speaking about is Student Motivation in English Medium Instruction, Empirical Studies in a Japanese University. I look forward to reading it when it comes out. I think it's coming out in March, which uh, should be around about the time when this interview comes out as well. So if you're listening and you're interested, then uh, please feel free to go ahead and order it. Thank you very much for your time today, Naoko, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you very much. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.